Our scripture this morning is from James. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the victor's crown, the life God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. Don't be, my, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth so that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. This is the word of the Lord. I pray with me if you would. O Lord, Father of light, would you shine your light into our hearts this morning so that we might see and perceive and understand, so that we might obey your word. O Lord, encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Reassure us where we need to be reassured. Remind us in all things of your tremendous love for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're, uh, we're finishing the first chunk. It's funny, when I, was, when I first planned this sermon series, which was back in February, I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a quick kind of fly, we're going to fly through James. And so I was planning, in seven weeks, we were going to cover all of James. Uh, in seven weeks, we've covered 18 verses of James. We're not even through chapter one. Uh, so brace yourselves. Uh, but it's worth slowing down, and I started realizing more and more, uh, there's so much here. You could, you could eat a good steak dinner in seven minutes. But why would you want to? Uh, The whole point of it is that you slow down and you savor it and you enjoy every part of it. So that's what we're doing. And in this first chunk, James has been talked all about suffering. It's interesting that he begins his letter which is all about how do you grow in your faith? How How do you have a more mature faith? How do you become wise by God's standards It's striking that he begins that letter by telling us how do we endure suffering. He's shown us that God wants to work through our seasons of suffering. He's shown us how to endure seasons of suffering. He's shown us, he's given us perspective. He's shown us how to handle temptation. He's he's led us to ask God for greater wisdom. It's been a lot of actually very practical things. This morning, James is addressing a less practical question, but it's one that we've all had. Because all of that practical stuff is good up to a point, but if you don't have a good grounds, a good reason for why in the first place, you'll never last. Each of us has wrestled with this question, I would guess, at some point, which is this. How can God be good if he allows his people to suffer? How can God be good if he allows his people to suffer? It's probably one of the most durable questions. It's a question that people have asked about God for centuries, for thousands more, thousands of years. Now, last, last week, we, we saw James was talking more about temptation, but it's the same word, temptation and trial. And James said, God does not directly bring temptation into your life. He allows it, but he doesn't directly bring it in. But some of you, if you're really sharp, you're thinking, well, really, what's the difference? 
This is a really, really good question. Think about it. If God, think about it this way. If God really is all-powerful, if he's powerful over everything, and say somebody says, well, God doesn't cause the suffering in your life, but he allows it, you might be thinking, but what's the difference? Because if he's all-powerful, that means he could stop it. And if he could stop it, but he chooses not to stop it, then doesn't he actually play a more active role than it seems like in the first place? So there's a, the difference between saying God doesn't actively cause it, but he allows it, is a very theoretical, abstract difference. But when you really get to a nuts and bolts level in my life, God, if you could have stopped it, but you chose not to, what gives? That's a good question. That's a really good question. That's where James is going this morning. That's where he's going this morning, and this is how he starts. He says, don't be deceived. In fact, the way that, that uh, phrase is worded, you could just as easily read it, and some English translations say this, don't deceive yourselves. Don't deceive yourselves. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Don't be deceived. It's easy to think that if God allows pain in your life, then he's somehow not good. James says, don't deceive yourself into thinking that. Even your trials, even your suffering, even those hard moments, those hard seasons in your life are good gifts from God. Now you're probably thinking, especially if you're in the middle of it, Chris, this doesn't seem like a very good gift. I get it. That's why we're going to really dig into this question this morning. Let me just respond uh, two ways to that. One kind of response, we've, we've been here, just a quick recap of where we've been, and then we'll start heading where we're going this morning. First, the old, and I'll be brief. We've seen so far in James that our trials do something in us, at least when we respond to them rightly. They develop perseverance. They grow into maturity. They help us to grow wise, and there's a reward. James says something about the crown of life that God wants to give you through your trials. Like, wouldn't you call those things good gifts? Is there anybody here who doesn't want to learn how to persevere? Is there anyone here who doesn't want to be mature, who doesn't want to be wise? You see, God works through our suffering to bring us these good traits. Those are good things. But secondly, and let me, let me I'm going to, I'm really going to push in and challenge some of you here. When you accuse God of not being good when he sends trials or suffering, you're assuming that you know best about what's good and what is right and what is just. You're saying, you, I know best. So every now and then I'll, I'll hear, I'll um, talk to people, and I don't hear this as much as I used to, uh, I think when I became a pastor, people got a little bit scared to have some of these conversations. But every now and then I would hear, well, my God would never, dot, 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 fill in the blank. My God would never, and it's usually something about, you know, something hard the Bible says. Well, that's what the Bible says, but my God would never, or my God would always, and however you want to start, it always starts, my God. Your God? How, how do you know? Here's what God says about himself in Isaiah 55. You've probably heard this or heard some ver- version of it. 
He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, pause, how high are the heavens above the earth? The heavens just means like space. (laughs) How far does space go? We don't know. It's basically infinite, and somehow it's still expanding, and the rate of acceleration is increasing. As high as the heavens are above the earth, to infinity, so high above your ways are my ways, says the Lord. And so high above your thoughts are my thoughts. My God would never fill in the blank. Who gets to choose what your God is like? Let me just ask you. Who gets to choose? You? What does that mean? If you get to choose what God is like, what does that mean about who's actually God in your life? I submit to you. I suggest that the phrase, my God, and however you finish it, means that you are God in your life. Because when you finish that sentence, isn't it funny how your God starts to look exactly like you look? Your God cares about, your God cares about the things you care about. Your God hates the things you hate. Your God gets angry at the exact same people you get angry at. Isn't that something? And it comes to a point when you have to ask, the only conclusion from that Did God make you in his image or are you trying to make God in your image? You see, if if your God is exactly like you, then you don't have a God because you are your own God. You get to decide what is good. You get to decide what is just. You get to decide what is fair. You get to decide what is right. And of course God is on your side because he's exactly like you. He's you. You see, the, you see the problem with that, right? A God who never challenges you, a God who never contradicts you, a God who never infuriates you, a God who never drives you to your knees in tears and repentance is no God at all. We never realize that. We almost never realize that in the middle of a hard season. But in a sense... That question, God, how could you, is rooted in what? In some understanding that you know better than God. Could it be that he's doing something that you can't possibly understand or see right now? You never see it in the moment, I know. Sometimes if we're lucky, we see it in the rearview mirror. Sometimes we won't see it in this life. But if he is truly God... Could it be that he's doing something you don't understand? Could it be that God is using the trials and the hard seasons, the suffering? And I'm not making light of this. There's deep suffering in in the world in many of your lives. But could it be that God is using that? Uh, David Nystrom is a great, he's a really good commentator on James. Here's how he puts it. He says, in our arrogance and ignorance, we demand the right to define what good is. God's definition is often different from ours. So we need wisdom and insight from God in order to see the difficulties for what they are. Just because your circumstances are hard, brothers and sisters, 
does not mean God is not good. Do not deceive yourselves. Look back to verse 17. James says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like the shifting shadows. That word coming down, it has a sense of something that's just happening over and over and over. It's not like a one, to, like you guys, I got a birthday gift on my birthday. One gift and then it's done. It's like, it's like a waterfall. It just flows and pours and pours and pours Why? Because it says he's the father of heavenly lights, and he does not change. Let's just think about that image. This is a fun image. Um, What's more permanent than the heavenly? Heavenly lights just mean like sun, moon, stars, the lights in the heavens. What's more permanent than those things? Every day that you've been alive, I don't even know all of you, but every, I know this, every day you've been alive, the sun has risen in the east and set in the west. It's permanent. Every day. You didn't always see it because sometimes it's overcast like it is today. Every single night, the moon has come out. And sometimes it looks a little different because of the Earth's rotation or where it is. But every, the stars have always been there, even if they're covered over by the clouds. The sun, I I just read this. um, Astronomers estimate the sun has five and a half billion years of life left, the billion with a B, before it burns out. What's like, we can't wrap our minds around what that... That's per- if anything's permanent, that's permanent. But think about it. They actually do change. They change how we see them. The sun will rise a little bit later tomorrow than it rose this morning. And it will set a little bit earlier tomorrow than it sets this morning. Until we get to the absolute misery of winter solstice when there's like two hours of sunlight. And then things will get better. It will get better, I promise. The moon changes. Sometimes it's a full moon. Sometimes it's just a tiny little sliver. Sometimes you don't see it at all if it's a a new moon. The constellations change depending on the Earth's rotation and where you are in the Earth and what time of year it is. Like the, the most permanent things in the world still change. God, the Father of them all, who made them all, God never changes. As, as consistent and faithful as they are, as much as you can depend on those things, you can depend on God more. As important as they are to life, we need the heat from the sun. We need the light from the sun. We need the light from the moon at nighttime to get around, especially in the ancient world when they didn't have electricity. Like, we, God is more necessary for life. Just because you don't realize it in the moment doesn't mean it's not true. So don't deceive yourselves, James says. Don't blame God when things are going badly. And isn't it funny how we usually blame him when things are going badly and then we take credit when things are going well? Every good and perfect gift comes from where? It comes from above. Including far and away the, the absolute best gift. The gift of new birth. The gift of new birth. Now, so far in James, in the first 18 verses, James has addressed a number of questions. How do I find joy in my trials, in the hard seasons in life? How do I grow in true wisdom? How do I handle temptation? How do I find better desires in my life? The answer to all of those is simple. It kind of finds its fulfillment right here. New birth. Verse 18, God chose to give us birth 
through the word of truth. You must be born again. If that sounds familiar, it's because Jesus says it in John 3 with Nicodemus. You must be born again. Doran preached on this a couple months ago, by the way. Why? This is really important. Why did God give us birth? It's right here in the text. Because he chose to. Because he chose to. Now, those of you who are really good Baptists, this is going to rub against you in all sorts of wrong ways. Because good Baptists love to think about decisions. I made a decision for Jesus. I chose to follow Jesus. I chose to obey him. I chose to walk after him. I prayed that prayer. I walked down the aisle at the end of that church, whatever, however we, we look at it. We love the language of decision. And sure enough, it was a decision. But according to James, whose decision was it? He chose us. Now, if that rubs against you in all sorts of wrong ways, that's good. That means you're paying attention and at least hearing what's going on. This is profoundly offensive to all of our individualistic, self-determining instincts. Why? Because it strips you of your freedom. It strips you of the illusion that you are God. It's addressing really the same thing that, that James addressed before, that you get to decide, you get to control things. My God would or my God would never. Who is your God? You see, new birth, the news that God chose you, that you didn't choose yourself, and Jesus uses those exact words in John 15. So your issue, if you have an issue with that, isn't with me, it's with Jesus. When Jesus says, you did not choose yourselves, but I chose you, that's only bad news if you're trying to be your own God. Because then you have a tension. Me as God versus God as God. Who's it going to be? But if God really is God, this is the best news possible. Why? Because if being adopted as God's child were up to you, then if you didn't keep up appearances, you could lose everything. If you didn't behave, you could lose it all. Here's how Alec Motyer, an Irish theologian, puts it. He says, were salvation to depend on my choice, were salvation to depend on my choice, it would be as uncertain as my will, which fluctuates, blows hot and cold, and reflects my divided, fallen nature. But it is his choice. And then he quotes verse 18 right here. He chose, he chose to give us birth by the word of truth. And until his will changes, his word alters, or his truth is proved false, my salvation cannot be threatened or forfeited. You see what James is doing? He's saying your new life your new birth is tied not to your will, but to God's will. And God, the Father of lights, never changes. You see why that matters so much? That God never changes? You see, if you could earn God's favor, and if it were dependent on you earning it, then you could unearn God's favor. And you would constantly be living under this pressure and this weight of I better perform. And you're always wondering, is it enough? And you never know if it's enough because God is this precarious, we don't know what to expect from him. And you're always, you see the, the tension and the pressure and the slavery that that provides, that that means? But if you could never earn it in the first place, that means you can never unearn it. 
That's freedom. That's freedom, you see? If you have to earn it, that's slavery. But if God chose you, that's freedom. You see the difference? This is important. This is really important. Because, because birth, new birth, is one of those key things, one of the only things that will get you through a time of intense suffering. James has already said, consider the future reward. There's a crown of life coming. That's that, remember the rope illustration from a couple of weeks ago? But it's not the only thing, and it's not just, if all we had to look forward to was this sweet by and by that's coming someday, we wouldn't last because it's abstract and it's in the future and it sure sounds nice, but at some point that's going to crumble. You need something more durable. You need something here and now. Not just escapism. We don't bury our heads in the sand. You see, when, when life when life gets unbearable, we can be honest about it. Say, this, I, I don't know if I can go on. But in that moment, you can remember, I have new life. I have a new life. And so my life is not defined by the season that I'm in because God has transformed me and he is transforming me. And he has a purpose for this. He's doing something with this. Look at the second half of verse 18 here. God chose, God chose to give us birth through the word of truth so that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. That word first fruits, that sounds like a theological word or it's, we don't really understand it so we skip over it. Several times in scripture, both in the Old and the New Testament, God describes his people, both the Israelites and us, the church, that's in Revelation 14, as first fruits. Here's one example from Jeremiah 2. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. There's another related idea of Israel, which is God's people, as the firstborn son. Exodus 4.22. God just says, Israel is my firstborn son. You don't have first fruits if there aren't second fruits coming, and third fruits, and fourth fruits, and fifth fruits, and so on. You don't have a first, you don't call your firstborn son if you don't have more kids. And they're an only son, your only fruit. What's he saying? To be a first fruit means that there are more coming behind you. If it's the first fruit of the harvest, it's the first apple that, that gets ripe from your apple tree and it's apple season right now. But there are more apples coming. James says that we are first fruits, which means what? That God intends to use us, including all of the suffering that we've been through, so that the whole tree, or so that the whole world, might bear fruit. God has a purpose. He doesn't just choose us and save us, and then we just kind of hunker down in this holy huddle and wait for the sweet by and by. No, we're first fruits. We're meant to usher in the next fruits. In fact, you could make a case that one of the most consistent sins of God's people, whether you're talking about the Israelites in the Old Testament or us today, is that we forget God has chosen us for a purpose. We forget that we're first fruits and we think we're only fruits. But stretching all the way back to Genesis 12, which is like page 10 of your Bible, it's the very beginning. 
God says, I want the world to know me, and I'm going to use my people so that the world might know me. God wants you to live your life, including your suffering, including your suffering, as a portrait of the living Christ. And I'll tell you, one of the most powerful ways to show the magnificence of God is by suffering well. That's why James starts and spends 18 verses. That's why he leads with suffering. Why? Because when we suffer well, somehow it paints a picture of an absolutely magnificent God. How do I know? It's even more true today, I think, because our world prizes, what do we prize? Comfort, convenience, luxury, ease, comfort. Did I say comfort already? We've taken it so far, like, we don't just make our lives about trying to avoid real suffering anymore. We make our lives about trying to avoid, like, inconvenience, minor things. I don't know about you, if I see on the GPS that there's traffic ahead, I'll go the long way just to save, like, a minute or two off my trip, as if that were some major suffering that I were going to go to. glad I'm not the only one. We go through the drive-thru to get dinner because we don't want to deal with the inconvenience of parking the car and walking inside the restaurant and having to sit down and have a meal like a civilized person. I went through a driveway on Friday or a drive-thru on Friday, so I'm, I'm guilty too here. Like, you see, we make so much of our lives about convenience and avoiding the slightest shred of inconvenience, much less suffering much less suffering. If you can't even deal with that little inconvenience, how are you going to deal with it? When the doctor steps into the waiting room, the surgeon steps into the waiting room and says, there is a complication. How are you going to deal with it? When your grown son calls you and says, she's leaving me. When the investment that you are banking on all of a sudden goes bust. When the ultrasound tech says, I'm so sorry, we don't hear a heartbeat. How are you going to deal in those moments? In those moments, you know what the world says? God can't be good. A good God would never allow you to suffer like that. But as we've seen, the wisdom of God is foolishness to this world. The wisdom of God says, you know, I, I can't explain it. I don't, I don't know why. I wish I did, but somehow through this, I, I must believe that God is good. I have no other choice. I don't understand it. I don't have to, under, I don't under, have to understand God for him to be God. His goodness is not limited to my understanding, you see? In fact, I think I'm probably on a need-to-know basis. But like Job in Job 13, I will insist that though he slay me, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Imagine how that plays to a watching world. A world that's skeptical, skeptical about God. A world that can't even handle the most minor inconvenience. And here's this group of really weird people who are going through absolute hell and somehow finding joy in it. 
probably the most effective missionary, one of the most effective missionary strategies we have (laughs) is to suffer well. I know that's not the news we want to hear, but that's why James can lead his book in verse 2, very second sentence, and say, consider it joy, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you experience trials of many kinds because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance, when when it has grown to completion, leads to maturity. When we suffer like that, the world notices. We become first fruits. And Lord willing, and this is up to him, but Lord willing, then there come second fruits and third fruits and fourth fruits and fifth fruits. You get the idea people will start to ask questions. How do they find joy? How does she still persevere? You don't actually even have to have an answer to that. Like if somebody were to ask you, you could say, I I, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know, but somehow God has never let me down. All I know is my experience, but that's been my experience. God does not let you suffer in vain. He's building you through it. He's building the church through it. And through it, he's bringing all of creation into glory. We know that because it's not abstract. This is not theoretical. This is not just, oh, this might happen. We know it's true because it it happened already. That God doesn't just come up with this plan and say, I'm going to try this plan on an unsuspecting world. He says, I'm going to go through it myself. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you experience trials of many kinds. Now jump ahead to Hebrews. Consider Jesus Christ, who for the joy, the joy, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. Jesus understands. God understands. He doesn't ask us to endure suffering that he himself has not already endured. On the cross, Jesus suffered infinitely. That's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew the hell of being forsaken by God so that we don't have to. I'm not saying it doesn't feel like it sometimes. But we know that God is always good. The Father of lights never changes. We can only do this because Jesus Christ already has done it on our behalf. He's given us power to do it. And by his grace, he will keep giving you the power you need. Do not be deceived. Do not deceive yourselves, brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift, even your suffering, (laughs) is from above. It's from the Father of lights who does not change, who loves you and who chose you so that you might be a first fruits. Let's pray. Lord, teach us. Teach us to suffer well. It's not something we we eagerly jump into. It's something that we're probably... (laughs) Frankly, we'd rather run from it. But even on a practical level, we know everyone suffers. And we need, we need hope in this life. 
Every other hope falls apart, but Jesus Christ remains the same yesterday and today and forever. So teach us what it means to not to shrink back, but to lean in in our trials. To lean into Christ, who knows our trial, who knows our suffering, who has borne our suffering, and who will get us through. Sharpen us, refine us, and yes, we look forward to that day when there will be no sorrow and no tears. But until then, shape us and uphold us with your righteous right hand. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.